Father, we, we thank you that this is not just a song for us. This is our prayer today. I want my life to be available to you, God. Whenever, whenever you call, whenever, whenever you need, God, whatever, whenever, and whatever you need, I want to say I'm available to you. God, we want to be available as a church. Thank you that you have used the generosity of these amazing people at Times Square Church to be available for Columbia and Nehemiah's and for that church, the feeding of almost 200 children there. Thank you, God, that they were available. Their generosity was available to touch that, that community there in Columbia. I'm asking you, God, today, help us, soul and spirit, to be available to you. And we thank you for it, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to challenge you today, and I'm so thankful for not only what Pastor Patrick led us in prayer, but even what Greg began to lead us in in singing today. But there's some things I want to challenge you with today, and I want to tell you a story. I made a decision from, very, from the beginning of coming here to New York City that I knew God was asking me to be a day and night man in my prayer life. And so each morning and then each night to go and pray for you and pray for the city. And, and it happened last night. As I began to walk through Times Square and, and, what, and, and what I've seen and what we're experiencing here is what's happening all over the country. On that prayer walk, something on that prayer walk, listen to these words, disturbed me about me as I began to pray. Let me say those words again because I want you to hear this. On that prayer walk, something disturbed me about me. Because as I was praying for the city and praying for our church, I've seen it before and for some reason, God brought a disturbance in me about me. We, we, there, there, you will see it occasionally, especially here in Manhattan. They call it bike outs, that you'll just be walking on the street and it could be up to 50 young people riding their bikes on the street, on the, on the, uh, on the sidewalk, wheelies, everything. Um, it is a, a making a statement, a protest, whatever it may be, but they call them bike outs here. And I just stopped. They get sometimes awfully close as they're, they're riding down. And as I'm there, I became, I thought to myself, I became frustrated. I just stopped, became maybe a little bit angry. But worse, I became judgmental. And even worse than that, I became cynical at that moment. I became cynical. I, I, convinced, I convinced myself on the spot that I knew the story, that I, that I, was, I, was, I had a right to do that. I, I, I didn't know one of their stories. I didn't know one, one of those people. And I let cynicism go unchecked inside of me at that moment. I had to pause and recalibrate my heart at that moment. And I started to repent of what was happening in my heart. And I started to pray for these teenagers. I started to pray for every one of them without knowing any of their lives or any of their stories. This is what I started to realize. Cynicism removes intercession and prayer for people. When you become a cynic, you lose intercession. In fact, cynicism is a lazy verdict that you impose on people. It's this, it's this, this thought that, that what we have done is you become judge and jury without knowing all the facts. And God began to convict me in a sense of the ugly, cynical living that was going on inside of me. Something that was deep in my soul that God was going after. 
I, I, I want, get ready because we're going to begin to talk about this in just a moment. I saw something in the scripture, of, of an act of kindness in the scripture. Stay with me now. That turned into 40,000 deaths because of cynicism. As I was reading this week, um, and what I kept asking, the, the, what I kept looking at was what was in between a kind act and 40,000 funerals stay with me, was a false narrative, a made-up story, a group of people that were ugly, cynical, living people. It was cynicism. It was creating a story, a false narrative that literally caused the lives of so many people, a false narrative that somebody believed enough to take, to take a kind deed and make it literally go off the rails. And this is what I started to believe. Get this down. Listen to me close. The less time you spend with the truth, the easier it is to believe lies. The less time you spend with truth, the easier it is to believe lies. Let, let, me, let me explain to you how, how it happens um, on how, uh, and tell you a story of getting it really wrong and believing a false narrative by what you see with your eyes, almost what happened with me. That's why what Pastor Patrick said was so important. He leaves a family gathering and goes to intercession. I, and, and, and looking at maybe dysfunction and some things that needed prayer, and that's what challenged me, listening to Pastor Patrick. He leaves a scenario with prayer, and I leave it with cynicism and judgmentalism that God needed to deal with my own heart. Let, let me tell you a quick story. No deaths involved, not the 40,000. We'll get to that in a moment. No deaths, but in this story, a really huge opportunity that were missed, that was missed. Jane and Leland in 1854 lost their 15-year-old son to typhoid fever. They were grieving as parents, and Jane and Leland decided to establish a memorial to their, to their son, Leland Jr. And so what they decided to do was they wanted to do something that they determined that they wanted to help schools, a university, to, to find a cure for this back in 1854 so no other parent would have to grieve like the way that they grieved. And they decided to show up at Harvard University, found a way to meet with Charles Eliot, the president of Harvard University, and he received the couple. It was a strange meeting that he would receive people to come in that just said, we want to do something for the university. And they, said, and, and they asked what, he, what they could do or what they could do, and they expressed their need to fund a memorial. But Eliot, looking at, the, at, them, at them impatiently in this unpretentious couple, just said, well, what do you have in mind, like a scholarship? And they just simply said, well, no, we'd like to do something more substantial, maybe a building or something. As he eyed them up and down and have already made this judgment upon them, he kind of brushed them aside as it being too expensive, and the couple departed in, very, in, in just kind of a disappointment. They were not only dealing with grief, but now um, the president of Harvard just looked at them and said, no, we, we're, we're fine here. We don't need to do it here. The next year, President Elliott of Harvard realized that the plain couple, this plain unpretentious couple, went from Boston and went across the United States to the West Coast and established a $26 million memorial fund for their son, Leland Stanford Junior University, called Leland Stanford Junior University, which we know today as Stanford University. I, I don't know about you, I think Harvard missed it at that point. What President Elliot did was, eyed something with these, came to a judgment himself, and because 
he misses this opportunity, his own cynicism now begins to, to, of what he saw at face value, now begins to make a judgment call on people. That's what I did yesterday. That's what I did on my prayer walk. I have to remind you of something today that occasionally I have to remind myself. This is, this is going to be, this is going to be for some of you a shock. Here it is. You are not, and I am not, the fourth member of the Trinity. Let me just remind you, okay? You and me, we are not the fourth member of the Trinity. God doesn't need our help. Nowhere in the scripture does the Bible um, give us the power of the fourth member of the Trinity and our deity. And we do that when we start judging other people's motives. When we start to think to ourselves that, that we know why they did something. We, I, I am not allowed to say, you didn't mean it when you said you were sorry. Do you understand what I just did? I just became the fourth member. I just decided I know what their motive is. I just decided that. I, I'm not allowed to say, um, you did that uh, to get back at me. You did that on purpose. That is, uh, you did that because you want to be in charge. When you judge the why of an act, you enter onto sacred ground that belongs to God. When you judge motives of people, you begin to move into a dangerous place. See, these are all motive and intention judgments. And when you say things like that, you would now become, in a sense, the fourth member of that trinity. And you begin to say, I know what's going on inside of their heart. Today, listen carefully. Today, we are living in a time that from presidents and protesters, people are judging everything and in intentions of heart. Everything is happening around this country. Cynicism is now becoming the default attitude of our country, especially as we're moving towards an election. Everyone has decided we know what they meant when they do certain things. No one today, and I saw it in myself, no one today believes the best about anything that's said or done. We immediately start at one of the worst spots and go, they did this because of this. And we move on to that, that deity, that fourth member of the Trinity, because we've decided we know why they did that. If the Republicans or the president does something for the inner city or does something for, for our country, we immediately assume there's a group that immediately assume they're only doing it to get reelected. Watch out. And if, if the Democrats in Congress do something, um, of whether they say, let's, let's be financially frugal or something, or let's not do this stimulus package, immediately we're going, they hate God and they hate Christians. We jump right to, we jump right to cynicism. Folks, this is dangerous, not just with our society, it's happening in the church. It happened with me. Everybody seems to know exactly what the intention of the heart is of when, in a sense, of our enemies, and we decide why they did the very thing that they did. How dangerous is that? We judge policemen to be racist and somebody with a BLM shirt on to be evil. That's dangerous. We, we immediately come to conclusions. How sad when it's happening in the body of Christ. Listen to this. A cynic is a habitual doubter. They're always negative, expects the worst, probes for the worst when there's nothing negative or visible on the surface. So what happens is we can take an act 
we can take something that somebody does and immediately impose our cynicism upon that. And we have that society. Ultimately, a cynic, starting with me, a cynic always discovers something that will confirm their suspicion. Let me just say that. A cynic can always find something to confirm their, 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 their suspicions. See, let, let me say it like this. For every kind act, the cynic is doubtful and declares there's another agenda to it. That's what cynicism does. That's what, that's what happens. It was, it, it is, cynicism um, creates a numbness towards life is what it does, is what Paul Miller said. It, it's, it's something, I think about even what happened yesterday. Christians from all over the country began to come to Washington, D.C., and cynics begin to raise up whether it's in the church or whoever it is, and going like, why are they doing that? Why are they meeting there? Why is, how come Billy Graham is doing this and Jonathan Con- and, and, and And here's what, what I kept thinking about. When, on, when, with our Plymouth prayer meeting that's coming up, we have people trying to figure out, the cynics are trying to figure out, what's our angle, cynicism, what's our angle for doing the prayer meeting on October 6th. Uh, they're doing it uh, for Trump. They're doing it to, for, to, to stir, to, for the election. They're doing for this. Okay, here it is. Stop it. We're trying to bring America back to its knees. We're trying to bring the church back to praying. That our cynic hearts and minds wants to go to the negative. We begin to become so numb towards life. That's why I am so excited. Next Sunday, next Sunday, October 4th, the Times Square Church overseer, Carter Conlin, is going to be sharing here and speaking on prayer and challenging us to get ready for the October 6th Plymouth prayer meeting. And that's why this is so important. And I don't want you to miss that. Paul Miller went on to say this. Cynicism begins with a wry assurance that everyone has an angle. Behind every silver lining is a dark cloud. The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaging, loving, and hoping. To be cynical, listen to this, is to be distant while offering this false intimacy that we are in the know. We know why people are doing this. And this is what I started to realize. The only thing worse, parents listen to me. Leaders listen to me. Politicians listen to me. The only thing worse than being a cynic is infecting others with that same condition. It's the only thing that can be worse. It was the great English preacher F.B. Meyer who said it like this. He said, I believe, said that when you see a brother sin or a sister fall into sin, he says, before you become a cynic, I love this. He says, there may be a few things that you need to step back and ask before you make the judgment, before you become a cynic. This is what, this is what F.B. Meyer said. He said, when you see a brother sin, he said, do this. First, we don't know how hard he or she tried not to sin. Second, we don't know the power of the forces that assailed on him or her. And third, we also don't know what we would have done in that same circumstance. I thought, man, that brings things down to reality, even for me. I was reading the um, story that Chuck Swindoll, great radio Bible preacher, told one time. He was speaking in on the West Coast, and while he was there, a man approached him and said he was looking so forward to hearing him um, speak. And Swindoll said that every night on the front row, this man would sit on the front row, 
and the first night he fell asleep during, during Swindoll's message. I, that's, that's not a good thing for us preachers. We're not, I mean, for us, we're going like, okay. Um, and my cynic heart wants to say, you're not, you're not doing what's right. It's not me. That's what cynicism says. Swindoll just goes, maybe they were tired. They drove in. He said, it happened the second night. And he said, Swindoll said, I started to get a little bit angry. He said, he was speaking for five straight nights. And by the fourth night, he looked at this man sleeping through every single sermon that he preached. The man that said, I came here because I couldn't wait to hear you speak. And before Swindoll can begin to, to express his, his, his distaste or his anger towards this man, his wife came up to him on the last night and he said to Chuck Swindoll, he said, I want to apologize for my husband's inattention to your message. And she explained, he said, he's been recently diagnosed with cancer and the chemo makes him extremely sleepy. But he had one lifelong ambition before he died and that was to hear you speak. It's amazing the stories and the narratives we come up with instead of believing the best about people. It's amazing the ugliness that I saw in my own heart of cynicism. But let, let me show you how ugly cynicism can become. And I want to take you to a passage in 2 Samuel chapter 10 that God started to speak to my own heart about. The story starts with a kind deed and ends with 40,000 deaths. It starts with the kind intention of a, 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 a kind intention and ends with a false narrative that someone judged. Someone became the fourth member of the Trinity. Someone became a cynic. Someone became a doubter. Someone took a kind deed and said, this is the angle, as if they knew what was taking place. David had a great idea. He has just become king, and he wanted to reciprocate kindness that was showed to him from another nation's new king. In fact, the father, the, the old king, died and now his son was in charge and David wanted to thank the son because he couldn't thank the father and he wanted to do something special. His motive was kindness. His motive was for just repaying the favor. Let me read it to you. It's 2 Samuel 10, 1 and 2. This is what the Bible says. It happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died and Hanan, his son, became king in his place. And David said, I will show kindness. Here's the motive. I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. David was, David had, that was his motive. So David sent some of his servants to console him, to be a comforter to him concerning his father. Think of that. He was going to do something kind and he started with consoling, comforting this new king. As he sends men to, to Amon and the new king, something devastating happens. Men become the Holy Spirit. Men become cynics. Men decide that they know the intention of the heart. Men have now come to the point of going, I know the whole story. The cynic is, remember, is in the know. Here comes where the false narrative now becomes catastrophic. Listen for it. Verse 2 and 3. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? Do you, do you see what just happened? Hanan's servants are really, are really bother me. The men that this king has surrounded him. And I'll get to those servants later. I'm going to get to those cynics later in just a moment. They said to David, this man, David, I mean, they said to Hanan, this man, David, 
has come here to overthrow the city, spy it out, and to search our city. David starts with kindness. The cynics, the false narrative, they want to overthrow the city and take it over. And in just a few moments, you're going to end up with 40,000 deaths. David said, I'm coming to kind of be kind and consoling. These, these men, it said, the princes, okay, princes, okay, that's pretty bogus. They're not princes, they're cynics. Interpreted the words and motives without knowing David. They interpreted it like I interpreted those kids on the bike. I interpreted what they were doing. I was wrong because I decided I knew their story. Remember, cynicism is lazy verdicts. It's a lazy verdict. Whether you impose it upon the Republicans or the Democrats, whether you put it on the Plymouth prayer meeting or kids riding bikes, I, 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 I just started to see that's what these princes do. They interpreted the words and motives, created a false narrative on, on, the, on David's story. The princes now of Hanan are the Holy Spirit. They know the intention of David. Somehow they could see into his motives. So the king takes action on someone's false narrative. He takes action on the cynics. And here's the cost and the results. Here's verse four and five. Listen to this. So Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards. This is just really weird. Cuts off their garments in the middle. Like, like this, this, whatever that was, shaves half the face, cuts half the garments in the middle as far as their hips, sent them away. When they told it to David, he sent to meet them for the men were greatly humiliated. And then all of a sudden, what's crazy is, Verse six says this. Now, when the sons of Ammon saw that they'd become odious to David, the sons of Ammon sent to hire the Armenians, uh, Beth Rehobab and the Ar Armeans of Zoba, 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Maacah with a thousand men and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. Do you understand what just happened? The new king just added 33,000 men on staff, which means he's got 33,000 extra salaries and health insurances now to pray because he's believing a false narrative. What's amazing to me is they're acting by hiring 33,000 extra men. And here's what just gets me. What, would you just think someone just asked the, go to the source? Why not just ask the person instead of going on what your motive is? They just said it because they knew why. Their false narrative got traction and started to snowball in, in just a few more verses into 40,000 deaths. Now the new king took action, get this, on the wrong story. They took action on the, on the false narrative. They took action on the wrong story. This is so dangerous when you're taking steps on false narratives that even build up in your own mind. Can, let me give you a side note here for a second. One of my friends said it like this. He makes this emphasis from Revelation 12, 11. Remember these words? Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Isn't it interesting? Not the accuser of my enemies, but of the brethren. That the people that you're even walking with, that what he was saying was that, the, that sometimes, even as somebody's showing kindness to us, the enemy will take people that are even our own life and our own household and accuse even the people, not even enemies, accuse people that we're walking with. 
Really, what he was saying was, this is how, this is how devilish Satan is. The accusation now has us fighting with the people that we should be fighting for. And we end up fighting with instead of fighting for. So far, these men, these princes and, and king have judged David, humiliated two men, paying an extra 33000 in salaries and health insurance because of misjudging intentions. And now they go to war, and here it comes, folks. Verse 18, but the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans, and 40,000 horsemen struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. Over 40 thousand deaths because you chose to believe a false narrative. David starts with kindness and it ends. I mean, listen, they're, they're listening to someone's misinterpretation of an act of kindness. And now it results in 40,000 deaths. A man just coming to say, thank you now turns from a, from, from kindness to a false narrative. And no one even bothers to ask David, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? I laugh when I read the story because I love when people just come clean with their actions. I was reading the story about a, uh, of a high schooler who brought home his report card that was heavy with D's and F's. And the father said, what do you have to say about this? And the son said, well, one thing for sure, dad, you can be proud of. You know I haven't been cheating. I said, I thought to myself, that's awesome. Just ask, go to the source. Well, we celebrate he wasn't cheating. The D's and the F's, that's another story. But here's, here's a thought for you about someone's action. You ready for this? Ask them. Ask them. Ask them and don't make up stories in your mind. Ask them. Some of you going like, wow, that's pretty heavy. It's true. Not, don't ask five people that don't know them. Don't ask your cheerleading squad that are around you. Go to the person. That's all you have to do. I, I, I want to give you something. I want to give you uh, and this is, this is, have helped Cindy and I in conflicts. It's helped Cindy and I in, in uh, raising children. It's helped me in leading churches. I want to give you a helpful phrase that will help you even in conflict meetings. It's an important, it's an, it's an, an important um, um, action step for you. And it's this, ask people when you're in a meeting, what do you hear me saying? That's all you have to ask. It's amazing when you ask that question, what you're saying and what they're hearing. Folks, I'm giving you, I'm giving you a key to fixing cynicism. Just ask people, ask your children, hey, we just discussed this. What do you hear me saying to you? It's amazing because sometimes, because sometimes what they're hearing sometimes go through the filter of, of, a, of an angry heart or a skeptic's heart. And sometimes the problem is me that I haven't even communicated it clearly. You are, you are asking them to repeat back. See, when you judge someone's intentions, you expose that you're a false and I'm a false deity, that we know their heart. When we start judging intentions. This is the society. This is, this is me being disturbed with me yesterday. When you allow your mind to run crazy with a story against someone's actions and words, you end up living a cynical life of distrust. And everybody, you look at everybody around you thinking to yourself, okay, what are they doing this for? Why is this happening? What is going on here? And just like David and, and the people of, of Ammon, there's dead bodies, humiliation, money lost, and lives lost. If there is ever a people that have, that have to have hope, if there is ever a people that have to have 
and look and trust and believe for God to be able to do something. It should be the believers. But I started to realize, let, let me just kind of pause for a second and tell you what God has been dealing with me on. Cynicism, I believe that God was coming, was, just spoke to my heart, and just says, comes from an unsurrendered life on some parts. It's from an unsurrendered life. See, the Bible has a word. You ready for this? This is, this is important. The Bible has a word for a Christian with unsurrendered parts to him. The Bible has a word for that kind of person. Um, what, what, does, what does this kind of Christianity mean? It, that there are areas of our life that are not exposed to the work of the Holy Spirit. You ready for this? God calls an unsurrendered people, his an, a cake not turned. Those, those are his words in the book of Hosea 7, 8. Listen to these words. Ephraim, his own people, have become a cake not turned. In fact, one version says it like this. The Lord says the people of Israel are like a half-baked loaf of bread. Think, think of that image for just a moment. That portions get exposed to God and other portions we won't expose to God. Because if, every, if I just kept walking yesterday and didn't let God take an area of my heart yesterday and do something, my goodness, that's me. I become the cake half-turned. I heard somebody say this. A half-Christian is more dangerous than someone who's not a Christian. And that's why I want every area exposed. Folks, look at me. I want my politics exposed to the Holy Spirit. I want every part of me exposed to God. Don't, don't, don't hold back anything. Don't be the cake not turned. What you know what happens to these kind of people? This is what it says in verse 9. It says, the very next verse to the cake not turned, it says, strangers devour your strength and you don't even know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him and he doesn't even know it. Two times the prophet says these words. He doesn't even know it. He, he's losing strength, doesn't know it. Okay, and this is a little personal. He says gray hair is setting in and he doesn't know. Isn't it interesting about gray hair that you don't know it's there, but everybody else sees it? That's what happens. You know what gray hair means? You're getting older. It means you're approaching death. So you're going like, really? Okay, is cynicism enough? You have to go into the gray hair part. Let, let, let me explain why this is important. He is, he is unaware of this kind of Christianity he is living. He's, he's unaware of it. Everybody else sees it, but he doesn't see it himself. And when we cease to grow, the decay sets in. And this is what's so important. And then I noticed this one verse that really shook me. When he sees the decay coming, you know what he does? God says, this is what you used to be, and this is what you're doing. Listen to this in, in, in Hosea 13.1. He says, when the tribe of Ephraim spoke, he said, the people used to shake with fear. That tribe was important in Israel, but the people of Ephraim sinned by worshiping Baal and sealed their destruction. Do you see what happened? He said, there was a time that when Ephraim spoke, people, there was an authority when they spoke. And he said, but that tribe, what happened was the people of Ephraim sinned by worshiping Baal. One version says it like this. It used to be when Israel spoke that, when, uh, that the nations began to shake with fear. See, there was a time he was saying that, that the voice of authority would come. But when you started worshiping other things, he says, your voice, when you started not exposing every part to God, he says, your authority started to go down and you lost 
You lost the voice that would make a difference in people's lives. Man, God help me. I would never want to get to that point. I never want an unexposed area to God. I never want a part of me that doesn't, is not, is not on, is not on God's radar. I am so thankful to the Holy Spirit that he called me out on 52nd Street yesterday. I'm so thankful that as I watch those bicycles that God goes, that, that God goes, you're a cynic. You've already judged and come up with a judgment on these people and you don't even know their stories. I'm so thankful to God. And, 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 and I started to realize, God, how do we deal with this? How do we fight against this? I, I want to give you three things and we're going to close. Jot these down because I think this is going to help us break through cynicism, break through believing the worst about people. But I want, I, and this is what I, I just started writing these down as God began to speak to my own heart. Let, let, me, let me give them to you. Number one, here it is. Judge yourself before you judge others. Let, let, let me explain it to you like this. Don't confuse, okay, I want to say this. Don't confuse your insecurity as discernment. Stay with me. Don't confuse an insecurity that's in your own heart as you have discernment and calling out people when maybe God is dealing with something inside of you that I want to make sure I'm judging myself before I'm judging others. I, when, when I got my first cell phone back in the mid-90s, it was a Motorola flip phone. Um, I had this, and I'll never forget, one of our guys in the church goes, Pastor Tim, do you, do you know that you can put really cool ringtones on this? And we're all going like, that's awesome. That's a... So I, did, I, did, I guess I didn't even realize it. He put a ringtone on my phone. So when service was going on, I was preaching on a, on a service, and I had a coat out in the, in the audience, and all of a sudden, don't judge me, don't be a cynic. As, as I'm preaching, I'm hearing this, this song come on from the cop show, Bad Boys. And all of a sudden, it's kind of going, Bad Boys. And I'm going like, whose phone is ringing during my sermon? I'm at an important part, and I hear Bad Boys going on. And finally, I'm, just, I'm looking like somebody figure this out. And then all of a sudden, I go, it's my phone. <laughs> it was me. As I'm judging an entire congregation, folks, look at me. It was me. It was God going, wait, don't, don't, work, don't start with the audience. Start with you every single time. Look at you. That's what I had to do. And sometimes our thoughts are backed up with so much insecurity that they create lies about situations and people. And your mind will believe everything you tell it. That's why we have to feed it faith and truth. Our mind will believe everything you tell it. And that's why my responsibility is to feed faith and truth to my mind and my heart and my soul every single day. Number two, jot this down. Be alert to what you think first. Be alert to what you think first. Learn Learn this verse that Proverbs 23, 7 says, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That when that thought pops up, the, the good news translation goes like this. It says what, what he thinks, what a man thinks is what he really is. And when I saw what I really thought, man, God goes, don't judge anybody. Take, start with you. Start with you. See, I have to, I, I started to ask God to go give me 
what the challenge was at the very last part of 1 Corinthians 13, that incredible chapter of love. This was the last part of that chapter, and this is what it says. Love bears all things. Here it is. Believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Wow. Believes and hopes all things. Or as the Passion Translation says this, love is a safe place of shelter. It never stops, here it is, it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as a defeat for it never gives up. Here's what I've learned. The judgmental person disbelieves all things. But the Christian should be believes all things. The judgmental, the cynic disbelieves all things. But the believer, the one that has love in his heart, that, I, that I'm praying God fill my heart with love, believes all things. I was reading, I was reading the story from a bio of our third president, Thomas Jefferson. And when he, when they were riding horseback, him and his entourage and a group of 10, 12 men were riding with the president. They came across, the story in the biography was they came to uh, a flooded zone and an older man was waiting there and was so afraid to take his horse through all that. And he was just looking at it like, I, I have to get there to my family, but I can't because of the flooding. And as I was reading the story, he looked at President Jefferson and just simply said, he just says, can you, can you take me on the other side? And the president goes, hop on the back of my horse. And literally, he held on to our third president and brought him over to the other side. The man clinched on for dear life. And it writes in the biography, as the stranger slid off the back of the saddle, some of the entourage with President Jefferson said, tell me, why did you select the president to ask you to take him across? The man was horrified. He goes, I didn't know that was the president. I had no idea. And he said, but why did you choose him? He said, and these were his words. He says, all I know is, is that I looked on all of your faces and all of your faces said no, but his face said yes. You know, folks, look at me. I want to have a yes face. I want people to look at me and go, That's, that man says yes. He says yes to believing in people. He says yes that God can do something in people's lives. He says yes. Nothing is more cynical than the person that says no. Can we do No. Did they, what, are you going to do, no, no, I want to be, a, I want to be a man that has yes on his face. Yes, God can. Yes, we can. Yes, the church is going to rise up today. I want to have, I want the people to look at me and go, that man has yes on his face. That's what I want today. Can God touch teenagers today? Yes, he can. Can God touch your home today? Yes, he can. Can God still do something with the church closed today? Listen to me. Yes, he can. The kingdom of God is able to. I, I have to learn to judge me first before I judge others. Secondly, I have to make sure that I'm alert to what comes across my heart and mind first. The first thoughts that come, I'm going, God, help me. And let me close with this. Don't, okay, let me, let me explain this. Don't make one everyone. Some of you got this. Don't, don't make one Everyone, we think that since somebody has hurt us, that everyone will eventually hurt us. Don't, don't penalize innocent people because of your past hurts from an evil person. Don't make one everyone. That's where we become a cynic. 
the, the definition of cynicism is an inclination to believe that people are motivated purely by self-interest, that a, it's a high view of ourself and a low view of others. It's a judgment of the motives of other people. I was reading an article recently on how leaders get that kind of thinking, that wrong thinking inside of them. And he said, there are three things that can create that kind of cynicism. And it was very interesting for me as a leader because I needed to hear this. He said, here were the three things he said. He said, you haven't grieved your losses. You project past failures onto new situations and you decide to stop trusting. Let me, let me say those again. You haven't grieved losses. That one was interesting to me. You haven't, pro- you projected the past. That's the one is everyone past failures onto new situations and you decided to stop trusting. You know, it was interesting to me when I thought about that first one that you've, you haven't grieved losses. You know what, was, what God used to make the children of Israel do when they lost something is to go into grieving for 40 days. To really understand, because when you don't grieve, whenever, when something happens, whether it's a child or a death or something that you have faced as a family, when you don't do that, then, then you, it's easy to get a numb heart towards loss. Whether it's, pastor, listen to me, whether it's someone who leaves your church and just go, well, let, let, we'll get more coming in. That, that, that brings cynicism. Someone just left the choir. So it's okay, we'll, we'll fill it up. That's cynicism. That, that's, it, it, the, I think God would make them grieve for 40 days. This, this, this person said because it was them realizing that they, these are people. This isn't just a law. These are people. This is people that have done this. This isn't just a man. These are people of what they're faced with. Or, or he talks about when you project past failures onto new situations. That's the, don't make one everyone. That's when we all of a sudden are going, they're going to be just like this. They're going to mess up in the office. They're not, how long is it going to take for them to to leave? Just like everybody else. That's when we start beginning to project that um, because the next person um, we think is just like the last person. That's dangerous. But the part that got me was when you decided to stop trusting. That was what Hanan did. Hanan decided to stop trusting. He didn't trust David's kindness all because he surrounded himself with those bogus princes that thought, that thought they were the Holy Spirit. Listen to these words again from 2 Samuel 10, 2-3. When David's servants came to the land of the, of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants in order to, to, in order to search the city, spy it out, and overthrow it? You want to stay a cynic? Then surround yourself with the wrong people. Surround yourself with the no people and not the face that says, yes, we can do this for God. Here's Hanan's friends narrative destroyed the lives. Listen to this. Hanan's princesses narrative destroyed lives. And this is why when we talk to you, Times Square Church, around the country, around New York City, around the country and around the world. When we talk to you about getting involved with connect groups, we're talking about getting connected with the right people. That if you're not, even though you're not here, you could still begin to get connected to the right people. Because when you're connected to the wrong people, when you're connected to the people that have their faces no, it's easy then to start believing the false narratives. I want the right people around me. I don't think anybody talks about how important having the right people around you and connect groups and one of our interns named Terrell. In fact, Terrell can tell his story better than I can. Watch Terrell and let him tell you in his own words 
I was born again at 19 years old. I was still trying to do it on my own. I was involved in church. I had friends at church, but I also had friends in the world. I realized in hindsight, like that was my downfall because I stayed in those groups. It took, it took a little while, it took about a year, but before I knew it, I was back into my old habits. I wasn't in church for a little, a little period of time. And um, I came in to see an old friend. And when I seen him, he was telling me about the connect group. I didn't want to open up about my personal life, my private life, and I wasn't open to change. But he said that the church had a chess club. I didn't have to wait long until the first um, meeting for the chess group. I think it was the same week I went and we played chess. It was competitive. We had a good time. And then at the end of the of the, the connect group, he prayed. And I was just like, I was really touched by the prayer. And um, that's when I realized like I was there for a bigger purpose. I mean, I knew I was at church. I knew that God more than likely wanted me to be back in church, but it resonated. And in that moment of prayer where it was like, I really do need this and I want this. I was struggling with coming to church and that got me to come. I just, I didn't come to church. I came simply to play chess. When I say yes to joining a connect group, God began to open doors that I didn't even imagine would be open. Your life is better when you're surrounded by godly people simply because you, you can think of it like, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. It's that simple. And that's what, what chess was for me. I was coming to play chess, but I was surrounded by people who thought on a higher level, who thought on a godly level, or I should say who thought on a deeper level. Pastor Tim quoted, quoted this guy. He said, Jesus saved my soul, but the church saved my life. It's, it's true. When I joined the connect group, doing something that I like to do, my life changed for the better. And it was a beautiful thing. Terrell, that is so powerful of making sure that you're not connecting with people with a false narrative that are cynics, that have no on their face, but people that have yes on their face. Man, there's just, there is one story I want you to believe about your life. There's one story that I want you to believe, that Terrell started to believe, and that's what God thinks about you. Let me say it like this. Without a good God... We are alone in a meaningless story. We're alone. What's, what, what hope do we have? Let me say that again. Without a good God, we're alone in a meaningless story. We need God. We need to know that there's someone that begins to look at our lives and says, I know every detail about you, and I, I believe that there is more for your life. I, 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 want, I want you to listen on what God thinks about you. Because we can become cynical even about ourselves. We can become doubtful about ourselves. And David, David, this man that starts our story off today, gives us a glimpse of how God thinks. It's Psalm 139. Listen to these words. David says, you saw, you saw who you created me to be before I became me. Before I'd ever seen the light of day, the number of days you planned for me were already recorded in your book. Every single moment, David says, you're thinking of me. I, I can't even, folks, I'll just tell you this. I have to pause there. I can't even fathom that. I have a God that every single moment he's thinking of me. He says, how precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in, 
your every thought. Thank you, God, that you're not a cynic. Thank you, God, that you cherish me constantly in your every thought. Oh, God, your desires towards me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. And when I awake each morning, you're still with me. Friend, I want you to listen to me. God's plan is bigger than your mistakes. God's plan is bigger than your mistakes. Or as one person said it like this, God doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you right now. He loves you right now. See, what's amazing about Jesus is Jesus loved people that others rejected. And in fact, even people who rejected him, that's how God loves. That's why I can tell you today, there's not a story, a sin, a failure, a screw up, a narrative, anybody that can tell God about you and going like, you really don't know Tim Delina. God goes, I know everything about him and I still love him. Folks, look at me. There is not a story, a secret that someone can tell God about you that he doesn't know already. He knows it all. And you know how amazing God is? He still loves us. God loves you. Because God operates on truth. He knows the truth about you and he knows the truth about me. And the truth is he loves you. He loves you so much he wants you to be in his family. He loves you so much that he wants to spend, you ready for this? Forever with you. Forever. What, what, what kind of God is that? He's one of a kind. There's no other God, Jeremiah says, than our God. He knows the truth about you. Didn't make him cynical. He knows the truth about every person that has ever lived and will live and still loves us all the same. And that's the God I want to give my life to. That's the God I want to be in his family and I want to be with him forever. Well, Pastor Tim, then how, how can that happen? Well, it's really by asking the most important question anybody can ever ask you. And that's simply this. How do you get to heaven? How do I become part of God's family? How, how do I make sure that, that I know that I'm in part of God's family? Jesus calls being part of God's family as being born again. That's, that's how we become part of God's family. We have to be born again. Well, Pastor Tim, I, I go to church, or Pastor Tim, I'm a good person. Um, if the doors are open, I'd be there. I'd be sitting on the front. Those are all great things. Well, I was baptized and I took communion. Those are great things, but that's not what Jesus said. That question is this. Have you been born again? Pastor Tim, what is that? Those are Jesus's words. That's not Times Square Church. We didn't come up with that language. That's what Jesus said in John 3, 3 and John 3, 5. No one can see the kingdom of heaven. No one can see eternity. That's kingdom of heaven. No one can be in God's family unless they're born again. What Jesus was saying was this, just as you had a first birth, you need a second birth. You were physically born, now you need to be spiritually born. Well, what about all the good stuff I've done? Don't stop, but that doesn't make you born again. How does it happen then? Well, it's as simple as ABC. Those three letters correspond to three words, and we just say that just to make it simple. There are some cynics that will be out there going like, you should be telling them this. You should be, hey, let's, let's just get yes faces on us today. I, I want to get people to heaven. I want, I want that yes face. I want you to see a face here that says, yes, you can be born again today. I want you to see yes on this face. 
And here's, it, it's this simple. A, admitting I'm a sinner. Pastor Tim, what, what, what does that mean? It's getting honest with God that all of us have a condition that God calls sin. There's a broken part in every, in every one of us, starting with me, that can't be fixed with a promise, a, a program. A priest can't fix it, and me as a pastor, I can't fix it. We need help to fix it. I am broken. We are broken, and the diagnosis is sin. One man said it, we're not mistakers in need of correction. We're sinners in need of a savior. We need more than a second chance. We need a second birth. That's the born again part. Well, Pastor Tim, how does that happen? Well, that's the B word. That's the believe part. That's where we get help. It's believing that God sent his son to fix our sinful condition by dying on the cross because I couldn't fix myself. If we could fix ourselves, so important to realize, if we could fix ourselves, then why would God have to send his son? If your good works get you to heaven, then what, what, what would be the purpose for God sending his son? He died the death that I should have died for my sin. Lived the life that I couldn't live and gave me a reward called heaven and forgiveness that I didn't even deserve. And the C word, A, admit, B, believe, and C, confess. Pastor Tim, what's confess? It's confessing Jesus. This is a big one as Lord. Okay, do I just say that with my mouth? Well, that, it's a little bit bigger than that. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says the word Lord, Lord means boss. You're in charge. You have veto power, my What you say goes. You don't just get Sundays. You get every day. Religion wants you to show up at a cathedral, a mosque, at a church for an hour. God wants a relationship with you every single day. Christianity is not coming to a place, but it's coming to a person. And that's what makes this so important. And that's why today, right now, I want you to see yes on this face. God can change your life. A journey can start today. Pastor Tim, I'm not perfect. Exactly. Perfect people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And today you could be forgiven. He is thinking about you. He loves you. He knows the truth about you and still loves you. And wherever you're at, you could be I'm in New York City. You could be in Taiwan. You could be in Kenya. You may be in Nigeria or in the Caribbean. You may be in Mexico or Colombia. You may be right here in Midtown Manhattan or in the tri-state area. You may be in Texas or California. If you're listening right now, I want you to listen. Today can start a brand new journey of God changing you from the inside out. Pastor Tim, what do you want me to do? I want you to pray a prayer with me. I want you to pray a prayer from your heart that just says, God, I want to be born again. I want, I want my life changed. If that's you, Wherever you're at, I want you to say these words. If you can, right where you're at, I want you to say it out loud. Maybe a whole family is going to say it together. And as soon as we say amen, don't click off. Don't close the laptop and don't click off your phone. As soon as we say amen, Pastor David is going to come on and say, here's a great next step for you. But here's what I want you to do. Wherever you're at, I want you to say these words out loud with me. Come on, say these with me. Because you're saying today, I want to be born again. I want to be, I want that second birth. Today is going to be your born again birthday. Okay, Pastor Tim, what do I say? Okay, say these words out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt, and you died for it. 
You faced hell for me so I wouldn't have to go. You rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to be born again. God is my father. Jesus is my savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper and heaven is my home. In Jesus' name.